We are continuing our study in the book of Acts by looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Would you mind if I pray just one more time for myself and for you as you hear God's word? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its guidance. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our way. I pray that you would guide us into your truth this morning and that you would help us to live it out in our lives each and every moment of each and every day. Uh, may we honor Jesus in all that we do. May we honor him in the things that we say and hear now. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, by the way, one last little bit of humor, I suppose. Uh, Sesky, did you notice I get to preach on seven, seven verses? You know, two weeks ago, you preached on what was it, uh, 70 times seven verses? <laughs> Preaching on Stephen's sermon. This thing is not really staying on my ear very well, but hopefully you can still hear me okay. All right, so they read the passage already, so I won't go ahead and read it again, but since it's only seven verses, I can comment uh, on almost every word of it in my sermon today. And the passage begins by saying, now in these days, it's begging the question, what days? It's actually, in a sense, begging us to look at the context of the passage. What are these days? Well, these days, as spoken of at the beginning of Acts 6, were days of gospel prosperity. Chapter 5 ended by telling us that even though they had been arrested, put in jail, beaten, the apostles continued to boldly preach and teach in the temple and from house to house. They didn't cease to preach and teach Jesus as Christ. And their preaching was very effective. And through the blessing of the Holy Spirit, we see that many new converts were believing in Jesus. The next phrase reminds us of that. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. In chapter 2, at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, we're told that there were added that day 3,000 souls. Wow, that would be cool. Wouldn't it to preach a sermon and find out 3,000 souls were affected to believe in Jesus Christ through that sermon? The final verse of chapter 2 reports that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it wasn't just this massive number of converts at that first Pentecost sermon. It happened the next day, the day after that. The day after that, people were hearing about Jesus and were believing in him by faith. Pentecost and the days that followed were days of tremendous growth in the infant church. After the arrest of Peter and John at the beginning of chapter 4, we read that many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So here again was some preaching that, pro that produced immediate, marvelous, tremendous results. Acts 6 occurs in the context of the Holy Spirit accompanying the preaching of Jesus through the apostles, with the result being many conversions, many responding to faith in what they heard preached. These days in Acts 6 were also days 
not just of tremendous growth, but of amazing unity. Pete preached on the passages in chapter 2 and 4, where the new converts were described as being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Pete challenged us to be devoted to these same things as well today. The believers were described as having all things in common, and they generously gave to one another and took care of those among the group who had needs of any kind, especially the need for the basic necessities of life. So it was said of them that they were of one heart and soul, and that there was not a needy person among them because of their love and kindness and generosity. These days being spoken of here, these early days were days of tremendous fellowship, tremendous generosity and unity among the believers. And because of, some, because of this, we sometimes read these passages and we long for those days to be just like that today. Is it wrong to long for and pray for the Holy Spirit to come again in such power at the preaching of his word that many conversions are seen? and that wonderful displays of fellowship and unity abound? Certainly not. With more conversions came more joy, more opportunities for the gospel to spread exponentially. There's your math reference for today. With more conversions, many more people were joining the church, and with more and more people joining the church came problems. This is why my first point in the outline is entitled, Trouble in the Early Church Paradise. When I mentioned the 100 people who were here last week, wouldn't it be great if by the end of 2021, this room was packed with worshipers, with many more even tuning in at home? It certainly would be. And with many more people would come more opportunities for ministry, more teachers and children's ministry, more people contributing their time, their treasure, their talents to the work here at Redeemer Fellowship. And one thing is for certain, with more people would come more problems. We've got to remember that all of us, at best, are sinners saved by grace. Every day is a reminder of the wonderful grace and mercy we've received from the Lord, and every day is a reminder that sin has not yet been totally eradicated from our hearts and lives. We've already seen the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, who acted deceptively to make it look like they were much more spiritual than they actually were. They were struck down by the Lord in the presence of the church, and we read, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. We're going to see more of the hatred of those outside the church who we saw killed Stephen, and eventually many of the apostles are also going to be martyred. We're going to see the persecution inflicted by Saul and his peers you see, Satan does not want Jesus to be preached. 
And he certainly doesn't want people converted by this preaching, for that means fewer people in his army and more in Jesus' army. And because of this, Satan tries to stop the spread of the kingdom of Jesus through persecution. But you know, he's a smart devil, literally, and he has noticed that persecution often causes the church to increase. That opposition often contributes to the success of the gospel in the church. So he's found a more effective tool to keep the church from growing. That would be the tool of inner turmoil and sin. Here in Acts 6, we see one group of believers murmuring against another group of believers. In future chapters of Acts, we'll see apostles questioning the genuine nature of God's work among the Gentiles. We'll see apostles disagreeing between themselves in such ways that require personal rebukes, as well as disagreeing over who and who shouldn't be taken on missionary journeys. As we continue to read the New Testament and consider the letters to the churches, the letter to the church at Corinth, can anyone truly say we long and pray for the days of the Corinthians and the church that existed in that city? Satan has been unable thus far in Acts to stop the spread of the gospel by opposition. So now we see he is trying to stop the spread of the gospel by sowing discord among the believers and trying to break the spirit of unity that's been described in chapters 2 and 4. Can we be honest and say that while the descriptions of the church in these chapters are worthy of our consideration and we should seek to be like the early believers with the rapid growth of the church, challenges arose in the church due to the sinfulness of man's heart. More people, more problems. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the church at this point consists almost entirely of converted Jews. We are at the threshold in the Acts of seeing the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, but we're not quite there yet. Because Pentecost was a feast of the Jews, there were Jews from all over the Roman world in Jerusalem at that time. And the early converts to Christianity consisted of Jews who were called Hellenists here in this passage, and Jews who were Hebrews and residents of Jerusalem and the surrounding sections of Israel. The Hellenists were Jews who had been dispersed to other regions and had adopted the language and some of the cultural elements of Greek culture. This produced a language barrier and possibly other cultural barriers to unity in the early church. You see, most of the Hebrew Jews spoke Aramaic. Let me give you a little modern analogy 
Let's pretend for a moment. Let's hope and pray for a moment that the Holy Spirit descended on the Toms River area in such a way that there were a tremendous number of conversions. But those conversions occurred to a large percent that in new converts that were Hispanic believers who were used to speaking Spanish, not English. What would it be like for the end of 2021 for this auditorium to be packed, as we said before, but to be packed with those whose first language was Spanish and not English? Wouldn't it be very natural for the Spanish-speaking believers to fellowship with the other Spanish-speaking believers and for the English-speaking believers to fellowship mostly with the English-speaking believers? Think of how difficult it would be and how much work it would necessarily involve to make sure that unity was maintained in the body. And by the way, wouldn't that be a great problem to have? So the believers in the church in Jerusalem are experiencing a problem like this. With their rapid growth came a church, in essence, with two different languages. And we're told that the Hellenists, those who spoke Greek, complained about the treatment their widows were receiving in comparison to the Hebrew widows. They maintained that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of charity. The Greek word here used for complaint is gongudzu, to murmur, to grumble, to complain with discontent. It's the word used in 1 Corinthians 10 to describe the frequent behavior of Israel in the Old Testament, especially the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. You might remember the story. The Israelites in Numbers complain about the manna, complain about no water, complain about that guy Moses and that guy Aaron and that gal Miriam. <laughs> Shouldn't we lead ourselves in Numbers? The people of Israel complain about everything. And that's the word, that's the idea that's brought into our text here today. You see, the church's unity is now in danger. That accord that we were reading about is in danger of being replaced by discord. It is interesting to note that the first contention we read about in the New Testament church is about inequality, about unfairness, about money? Sound familiar? <laughs> there are many ways in which the days we live in are not unique at all, but are filled with troubles and sins which have been going on for ages. This is a crucial moment in the life of the early church. So let's look at verses 2 through 6, because verses 2 through 6 describe a wise response that preserves unity. The apostles propose a solution to what seems to be a genuine problem. We don't know if the neglect of the Grecian widows was intentional 
or whether it was simply a result of the language barrier that existed. But the apostles recognize that the unity of the church is at stake, and they take decisive and wise action. They call everybody together. The apostles emphasize that it would not be good for them to put aside preaching in order to serve tables. Now let me say off the bat that they are not saying that the work of charity was not important work. In fact, their actions speak otherwise. No, what they're saying is that this work of charity was good and important work, but best done by others, not the apostles. Matthew Henry says that the apostles will no more be drawn from their preaching by the money laid at their feet than they will be driven from it by the stripes laid on their backs. I say again that the devil does not want Christ preached. And when he can't stop the apostles from preaching through beatings, he tries to stop them from preaching by making them too busy to preach. The idea proposed by the apostles is for the believers themselves to choose seven men to take care of this important work. Notice these aspects of the apostles' plan. It was the believers who would choose and nominate these men. It was the apostles who would appoint and ordain them to their ministry. These men needed to meet certain qualifications. They must be men of good repute, men full of the Spirit, men full of wisdom. The men chosen and ordained for this work must be men of integrity, faithful, well-attested, well-spoken of by the church, literally men that produce good testimonials. They need to be men of ability. They need to be men of courage. But most of all, the gifts, graces, and fruit of the Holy Spirit must be seen in their lives. They need to be men who will wisely distribute the charitable gifts with fidelity and frugality. So the apostles would then prioritize preaching and prayer, for this is the way in which Christ's kingdom would advance. You see, the 12th apostle, if you remember, was chosen by Lot, which means chosen by God. The seven deacons were chosen by the people. They're listed by name. I, I, I have in my notes here that I'm not sure I pronounced their names correctly, but you notice I didn't even reread the passage, so John got to read their names. Uh, you know, John, who knows uh, you know, how, whether you pronounce all of them correctly. I don't think it matters very much. But uh, the thing that we should note is all seven names are Greek. Two of the men will become very important in future chapters, as our brother Seski already spoke spoke to us about Stephen and also Philip, but the other five are never again going to be mentioned in the New Testament. The seven names are Greek names, so it seemed like wisdom to appoint Greek-speaking Jews to make sure the Greek-speaking widows are no longer neglected, 
but received their fair share of daily charitable provisions. Problem solved. We read that this solution pleased the whole gathering, and so the apostle laid their hands on these men and prayed over them as a sign of their calling to this particular ministry. Now, I called these men deacons, and many see this passage as an establishing of the role of deacons in the church, with 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, a passage that we read this morning, giving the qualifications of deacons in much greater detail through the pen of the Apostle Paul. The role of deacon is also mentioned in, by Paul in the greeting of Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, where he greets the overseers and deacons of the church in Philippi. This is a place where a little knowledge of New Testament Greek is actually helpful. In 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, the word used for these servants is diakonois. Doesn't take a genius to realize that this is the word for deacon, diakonois. So where does one see deacon in Acts 6 actually here? You didn't hear the word deacon in Acts 6. So is this really the establishing of deacons? Some would actually disagree with that. Technically, yes, the word deacon does not appear, but the word deacon really means one who serves or ministers. It literally just means servant. In Acts 6, we see variations of this word in three of the first four verses. The phrase serve tables in Acts 6-2 is diakonein trapezius. You might guess trapezius is tables, and diakonein is serve. Diakonein, serve, be the deacons of the tables. The word for deacon is literally the word serve, or service, or servant. The word also relates to aid or support. So the phrase daily distribution in 6.1 is literally the daily diakonia, the daily deaconing. And in 6.4, the apostles were the prayer ones and the denakonia, or servants of the word. Variations of the word deacon appear in three of the first four verses of Acts chapter 6. Now, one of the things I most appreciate about Pastor John's preaching is the way that he ties the message of the New Testament to the events of the Old Testament. He does that so well for us so often. And Acts 6 seems to mirror or parallel in many ways the events of Exodus 18. Pete read Exodus 18 for us. So in this Old Testament passage, the people of Israel, they've been delivered from Egypt. They've seen God's power at work to deliver them in the plagues that convinced Pharaoh to let them go, in the parting of the Red Sea that led to the final defeat of the Egyptian army. And now Moses is leading the people towards Mount Sinai when he's visited by his father-in-law Jethro. When Jethro sees all that Moses is doing for the people, especially all the cases that Moses is presiding over, it says from morning until night, 
he gives Moses some excellent advice. He asks Moses, Moses, why are you serving alone? He tells Moses that he's going to wear himself out at this pace, or to use more modern language, he's a prime candidate for burnout. Jethro suggests that Moses find other good men and put those men in charge of the minor cases so Moses can concentrate his energy on leading the people and deciding the major cases. Moses listens to the good advice of his father-in-law and avoids the burnout that would have surely come his way. Here in Acts 6, the apostles appoint godly men to serve the people in the important but more minor matters of the church so that they could prioritize preaching and prayer. One can only speculate and wonder if the apostles remember Exodus 18 when they propose their solution here in Acts chapter 6. The third point in my outline in the bulletin is the result of this timely, wise action by the apostles. We have yet another report of the success of the gospel with an emphasis on a particular group of believers there in Jerusalem. We see that wisdom and unity lead to continued growth and joy. If it was Satan's strategy to stifle the growth of the early church by sowing discord among the believers... The appointment of these seven men causes Satan's strategy to fail and the gospel to conquer. With the apostles prioritizing preaching and prayer, we're told the word of God continued to increase. And because they were free to preach, the word of God continued to be proclaimed and the Holy Spirit continued to empower their preaching, causing many more to believe the number of disciples multiplied greatly. What a good report. We are told very specifically that a number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that detail given at this point in the Acts narrative? I can't be completely sure, but in my study of the text, one of the things that I read was that there were a great many priests in Jerusalem and that most of the low-level priests were actually very poor. Could it be that the very thing that drew them to faith in Christ was the way in which the early believers took care of the poor in their midst? Could it be that the love seen in the daily distribution and the fact that the needy were well taken care of was such a witness to these priests that they wanted in. They wanted to be a part of this fledgling church. Could it be that the love and charity of early believers was even extended to these men and their families? The way that we love and care for one another, especially widows and needy in our midst, should be a strong witness of the reality of the claims of Jesus Christ. It is possible that this detail is included in this chapter for precisely these reasons. Whatever the case, we can clearly see that the appointment of these seven men by the apostles resulted in the continued growth of the church by averting possible discord among the brethren and allowing for the continued proclamation of the good news about Jesus.
I'd like to finish with some applications and observations, including a brief discussion of the deacon ministry here at Redeemer. First of all, an application for our pastors. I believe Acts 6, 1 through 7 is important in our day in that the times we live in are filled with the temptation for pastors to be too busy to spend time in prayer and preaching. Pastor John, devote yourself to prayer and the study of God's word. Resist the temptation to need to be a part of every decision made at Redeemer, no matter how small. Provide the church with vision and devote lots of time to prayer and careful study of the Bible. Prioritize these things like the apostles did and learn to rely on godly men and women to handle other important aspects of church life. Brothers and sisters who make up the body of Christ here at Redeemer, let's devote ourselves to unity and love. Let's answer Pastor John's call to have all hands on deck. Let's, to put a biblical twist on the famous JFK speech, let's ask the question, what can I do to serve Redeemer Fellowship? Before asking the question, what can Redeemer Fellowship do to serve me? Let's recognize that we all have a responsibility to serve the church with the gifts he has given us. Remember that the love and unity of the body of Christ and the way that we care for one another, especially those who are needy, is a powerful witness that the gospel is true. When visitors come to our church, hopefully they will hear a gospel message that's the result of our pastor's careful study. But will powerful preaching keep them here if they fail to see the church show the love for one another that should flow from that gospel message? I doubt it. Will they stay here if Satan succeeds in his strategy to show sow seeds of discord among us? What are ways that Satan is trying to drive wedges between us when in fact we should be united in our love for Jesus and our joy in the grace and mercy he has shown to each of us. John asked me to preach this passage because I have the title of head deacon here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. Many of you are aware that the role of deacon means different things in different denominations and churches. Here at our church, we try to pattern our deacon ministry after what we see here in Acts 6. I believe deacons should take the pressure off of the pastors to have to be a part of every decision and ministry in the church. I believe the role of deacons today is still to allow the pastors to prioritize prayer and preaching. Some of our deacons fill roles that other churches might call ministry team leaders, like Matt and Courtney, who lead the ushers and greeters. Those who serve in these roles are vital to the functioning of our Sunday morning worship and are often the first ones in contact with visitors to show them the love of Jesus firsthand. I believe that deacons should still serve widows 
and others who are needy in our body. Here at Redeemer, if you didn't know this, here at Redeemer, we have a benevolent fund to help those who are in need, to help those in our church who face financial hardships. You can give to this fund in the online platform if you have extra that you would like to share with others. You can write a debt check and simply designate it Benevolent Fund. Rich Cromwell and I are the deacons who seek to wisely distribute this money to those whose needs we are made aware of in our body. While these needs can also be met by individuals, there's no question about that, and through care groups, the Benevolent Fund is another way to make sure that the needy in our body do not fall through the cracks. Our Benevolent Fund prioritizes the regular attenders of this church, but we have also given gift cards for groceries to others outside of our body who call our office and ask for our help. Rich and I do our best to distribute this money wisely. But you know, we can only meet needs we're made aware of. So can I ask you to not be too proud to ask for help? If you have a need, we're here for you. We believe that the office of deacon is a calling to serve. It's a calling to serve our pastors and to serve those who regularly tend here at our local church. We also believe that all of us are called to serve, even if we're not given a title. It's interesting to read the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy and Titus and to recognize that almost every qualification to be an elder or deacon is something that all Christians are supposed to be and do. There is some, some, some disagreement among, among evangelicals as to whether the Bible allows for deaconesses that is, women functioning as deacons. Uh, this discussion largely involves interpretations of Romans 16.1 and 1 Timothy 3.11. You can look those up and kind of see what the discussion might be about. And there are good people who come down on both sides of this question. We believe as a church that based on these verses and the fact that a deacon is a serving position that women can function in this role. And so we have Courtney, we have our sister Nancy McKay functioning as deaconesses at Redeemer at this time. The final point I'd like to make by way of application is that no, no matter what office one holds in the church, the challenge is really to be like Jesus in that role. You see, the word pastor is related to the word shepherd. And in the role of pastor, one would seek to be like the good shepherd. A good pastor is like Jesus, who shows his love for his sheep by giving his life for their salvation. A good deacon is first and foremost a servant and in this role, is there any better example of a servant than Jesus himself? Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant. Jesus' own words when he was on this earth, he told his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He said to his disciples, I am among you as one who serves. He told his disciples that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who is the servant of all. And whoever would be first among you must be your servant. In John chapter 13, knowing what was soon to be his fate on the cross, Jesus got up from the table at the Last Supper. He took a towel, put it around his waist, and he did a job that no one else seemed willing to do. He did the job of a servant. He took a bowl of water. He bent down, washed his disciples' feet, cleaned them off with a towel. You see, the person hosting the supper was supposed to do that but they must have found it too menial. Jesus found no task too menial to serve others. And he is our example, as deacons or otherwise, of one who was first and foremost interested in serving others. And in that passage, Jesus called on his disciples to do as he had just done. As Christ's disciples, we're called to serve one another in love. A good deacon will serve the church in love and will do so knowing that this is what Jesus would do if he were here in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the challenges that it puts before us. Lord Jesus, help us to see ways in which Satan is trying to drive wedges between us and break our unity. Help us to know how to wisely act to make sure that he does not succeed. I pray that you would give us a heart like Jesus to serve others in our body, especially those who have need, who find themselves in very difficult circumstances. Help us all to have a heart for those, our brothers and sisters, and to show them love that will be a powerful testimony to anyone who visits our church. Give us grace to do this, Lord, because in our remaining sinfulness, it's just not easy for us to think of anyone besides ourselves. Break us of these habits, Lord, and give us a heart like Jesus. For we pray it his name. Amen.